Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast about the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. An audio pro who can talk straight through the laughter, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Mariana Hughes-Hegler. And this week we're going to be talking... I'm a professional too, again, damn it. This week we're talking about uh, climate change and the intersections with our healthcare sector yep. and also healthcare journalism. And our guest today is ProPublica's health journalist, Carolyn Chin. Yes, she's so great. And so is ProPublica. I, I think we like fangirl mm-hmm. them maybe more than every other outlet, but they're great. You should support them Definitely. if you can. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, ProPublica is amazing. So we're going to be talking about all the ways that climate change intersects with healthcare, especially in terms of COVID. What does science journalism really mean? Mm -hmm. How does it mean different things in different places? How is science represented in our media? All of those sorts of things. I I do want to add just one caveat before we play the conversation, Mm -hmm. which is that at one point we talked about the tenor of the conversation around wearing masks, not wearing masks, basically the new CDC guidelines to say if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear Mm -hmm. a mask. And, you know, what I want to be very clear about is, like, if you are wearing a mask and taking more precautions because that's what you feel like you need to do to keep yourself safe, no judgment on that. What I was trying to say at that point in the conversation is that I'm tired of the judgment. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) I just am. Like, in the broader conversation, I'm sick of people judging people for masking and judging vaccinated people for not masking. Obviously, like, there's a, it's a different story if you're not vaccinated and you're unmasked and you're just running around spitting in people's mouths. That's a whole different that story. That is another, another right. Yes. Well, I just feel right. like it's like, like I, you, there's no way that you can, you can't know what someone's particular situation is. So just, like, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, if, if you yeah. see someone spitting at someone else, say something. But right. <laughs> otherwise. But, like, yeah. I do feel like, you know... There's, there does feel like there's a lot of judgment for people who want to relax on the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that, like, the way my depression is set up, I can't take much longer mm-hmm. of this lockdown. Yeah. Like, I really can't yeah. for my own well-being. Yeah. So I would like for people to take that into consideration before they go judging one another. Because you might be judging someone who is, like, on the brink of an opioid addiction because they've been isolated for so totally. long. So just, you know, take it back. Totally. Just step it back. I know I'm drinking more than I should. I do feel compelled to point out, though, that, like, the um, the CDC's guidelines are, like, a real fuck you to people with young kids or people with oh, for sure. immunosuppression problems that, like, can't get mm-hmm. vaccinated. The biggest thing there, again, is not vaccinated people unmasking. It's unvaccinated people, like, pretending to be vaccinated and unmasking. Right. You know? So. Right. Yeah, we're going to be on lockdown for the rest of the year, uh, no matter what, Um, because this country hates families as much as it says otherwise. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. So So anyway, let's talk about climate. (laughs) Let's talk about climate. Caroline Chin, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on your show. 
Yeah. So this episode, we're going to talk a lot about healthcare and how it can intersect with climate or not intersect with climate. You are ProPublica's healthcare journalists, or at least one of them. And so I thought we would just start with your path to journalism and how you got into the healthcare beat in particular. Yeah, just to cut a long story short, my path to journalism, I'm, I'm not one of those people who grew up as a kid being like, I want to be a journalist. I grew up in Hong Kong and came to the U.S. for high school, in part because the education system in Hong Kong is great, but they follow the British, the British education system, which pushes you to choose between arts and sciences pretty quickly. And I was just like, I'm not ready to do that. So the U.S., education system is just a little bit more flexible. And I ended up majoring in English in in creative writing and poetry of all things, please. Mm. This is the least hireable degree with a minor, (laughs) with a minor in math. So I just never. (laughs) You want to diversify. (laughs) Yes. And then I was like, well, I I have a poetry degree. I, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? Mm -hmm. And I had done some internships in journalism. And I was like, well, that seems more practical than poetry. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I came to journalism in the first place. I just really like the ability to, you know, have license to ask people all my questions mm-hmm. and, and to combine that with my love for writing. Mm-hmm. And how I got into the healthcare beat was actually mostly serendipity. I uh, was an intern at Bloomberg News. And then when they hire people full time, they let you rotate on a number of desks that have openings on them. And one of them happened to be the healthcare desk. And I really, really loved healthcare. I love it because it affects everyone and it's a human story without a doubt, but there's so much complexity in the US healthcare system. And I I like diving in and Mm -hmm. getting to explain this to people, hopefully in a way that's going to help them make more educated decisions. And then also I still have always loved science. And as I said, I don't want to give up the science side. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much for a while I was covering biotech and just that startup drug industry and just being able to see the amazing things that are coming up there. I mean, maybe four or five years ago, I covered this hotshot biotech that was up and coming that was like, I'm going to change the world, which was Mm -hmm. called Moderna. I thought you were going to say Theranos. (laughs) No, I also covered Theranos. You did? I did. uh, One of the weirdest (laughs) interviews I've ever done. Um, What? was with Elizabeth Holmes at their headquarters. But no, yeah, I, I covered Moderna long before it was a household name. And it's been really fun to see. At that point, people were like, you can never make mRNA vaccines. Like people have tried for decades. It's not going to be a thing. What does this company think it is? And lo and behold, like every single person across the planet knows Moderna's name now. Yeah, seriously. They're like celebrities. I mean, I definitely want to get into that soon about this whole remake of Big Pharma in the past year. But also, I'm just interested because I hear echoes of both me and Amy's stories in your in your story, because like, I got Mm -hmm. into climate because I wanted to be part of telling the biggest like the what I thought was the most important story, the most inclusive story like that affected everybody. And I was choosing between public health and climate change. And I Mm -hmm. now know that they're not different things, which we'll talk about more on this episode. But also with Amy, as an investigative journalist, she got into uh, journalism because she wanted to ask people a lot of questions. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's true. I feel I feel like you yeah. and I have had that conversation where you were like, I didn't really want to have to ask people 
questions and I was, nope. I'm like that's my favorite part <laughs> now like people yeah. would be like oh you should be a journalist because you like to write I'm like no but I like to write about what I think <laughs> I don't want to talk about what other people think <laughs> so anyway but yeah it, it sounds like you were like born to be a science journalist which is a term I feel like we hear a lot in the climate spaces and I'm sure people hear a lot in healthcare spaces but I honestly don't really know what it means so somebody help me <laughs> I don't have a good answer for you here. I mean, it's funny, especially, you know, as we'll talk more, it's kind of like a Venn diagram or like a very mushy. There's a lot of watercolor moments between health and science, right? I think you often have health and science journalists lumped together because I think there's a lot of overlap. And then there's some people who would identify as like, I am a health journalist. And then others who are like, I'm a science journalist. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was on a on a group of people at this this news cube panel that was looking at questions of what even counts as science or health journalism and how does that affect the algorithms that bring you if you're in google news and you go to the science tab what should go in there and what shouldn't i mean these were su such fundamental questions that were really interesting to explore but it's not like we have here is the definitive answer because it's it's really hard yeah to just define yeah. I think we saw this play out with with a lot of the COVID coverage. Like we saw a lot of climate journalists get put on doing COVID stories because it was just like science, science, right? And I, mm -hmm. and, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know like how useful the, the term even is because I just feel like there's so many specific beats within that umbrella. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get lumped into science journalism a lot, and I have to explain to people that I actually do neither of those things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, like, I write so essays, weird. not the same thing. All yeah. opinions. Now you're asking, what is journalism? <laughs> a little bit. I, I know things about journalism now after doing this podcast. Yes. Like, just in general. Yeah. But it did kind of feel to me like science journalism was a special class of journalists. But anyway, one of the ways I think this kind of plays out in terms of the way these two things get smushed together is like with the election, the way that we talked about climate during this past election, it was like the first time that climate had ever even been part of the debates. But the way it was integrated was like super, super problematic. There were very few questions and they were strictly economic or scientific. And the questions were usually left for the very end. And what's frustrating is that climate change is hardly ever talked about in terms of the toll on human life in these conversations. And and that is how we should be measuring it. So we should be measuring climate change as a health cost and not as, as an economic cost. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think not only to the health of every single one of us human beings, but I think also the health of the planet. I mean, I, I think about those as uh different but overlapping questions, right? Because obviously the health of the planet is going to, by which I mean like every single ecosystem, the biodiversity of the planet, all of those things I think are important for their own sake, but also because they ultimately have effects on humans. But I think that that can be a bit of a complicated dance, which politicians are not gonna wanna deal with in 30 seconds on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they are, so what was also so frustrating to me is that it felt like they, we're so prepared to talk about healthcare in the weeds. Like they could go walk out on healthcare any day of the week, especially in the democratic debates. 
But when it came to climate, it was like, oh, no, we can't get into that. That's too technical. But we can talk to the whole country about premiums, really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the nitty gritty details of healthcare policy. Sure. No problem. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. That's such an interesting observation. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. I do think you're right. At the same time, I think it's very easy for a politician to feel like they can immediately connect with someone when they're like, your bill should not be too high. You should not be able to not be able to pay for health care. Like those are very easy attachment points where I think that they're comfortable even if they then attach whatever bill they have to yeah. it or, or policy to it, it boils down to you should be able to afford your, afford your health care. You shouldn't get a surprise bill. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as I'm sure you guys face all the time thinking about climate changes, I do think it is, it can feel overwhelming for some people or like mm-hmm. it's too big. And even though you might say, I don't want to live in, you know, with climate change, that is a fundamental human right. It feels a little bit harder to then say, well, we're going to remove surprise, legislative ways, surprise bills. I don't know. Right. It feels, I think <laughs> some people can feel too big. So I'm sure as climate journalists, you guys have ways to help people come to terms with it in ways they can wrap their brains around. Yeah. I, and my go-to is, do you want to burn up? <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, most people say no to that. No, that sounds bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, just whip out the visuals from San Francisco this summer and people like, yeah, so I don't want that. Crazy how quickly people have kind of moved on from that, though. It's For the people who live in the Bay Area who I think are already gearing up to be prepared for their next fire season. Yes, me. Yeah. I, 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 yes. <laughs> I live in California and we have red flag warnings right now and I'm like, fuck, it seems like it just ended. I just feel like it's, yeah, it's all year round, <laughs> but I feel like outside of this States that are directly impacted by it. I just feel like mm-hmm. it leaves people's consciousness pretty quickly. Same with hurricanes, though. I mean, I feel like on the West Coast, we're just like, hurricane what? <laughs> so Yeah, I feel like it is in the back of people's minds all the time. It's kind of like like something that haunts over people. And I think it's on on politicians to start talking about it as a reality. Just because people don't already understand it yeah. doesn't mean that they get to avoid it. And so I think it's on them as leaders to normalize the conversation and make it real and make it concrete. Because I think, you know, I I wouldn't think about premiums if it hadn't been hammered into me since I was like watching Bill Clinton debate. That's true. (laughs) I feel it's funny because I feel like there's a lot of public criticism of scientists to get better at communicating climate. But I don't know why that same expectation hasn't been put on politicians who also suck at it. Right. (laughs) Right. And I mean, or on the media industry, as you're always talking about, Amy, to get better at talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say about the the health impacts of climate, that that is, I know that's something that people are starting, there's more and more research on, and that a lot of the lawyers that are bringing the climate liability cases are looking at ways to... I mean, it sounds so crass when you're talking about human lives, Mm -hmm. but they're really trying to put a price on like, how many people will this kill? (laughs) And and like, Mm -hmm. how to assess damages for that to fossil fuel companies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that'll be an interesting direction that that takes in the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I think that climate journalism could learn a lot from healthcare journalism in this way, right? Mm -hmm. Because that conversation has been normalized. People are more familiar with 
who the bad guys are, who the good guys are. Probably not as well as they should be, but like I just I I yearn for the day where big fossil fuel or big oil is maligned in the same way that big pharma has been. I mean, they're not so much anymore because they came up with the vaccines, but for a while, everybody hated those guys. All right. So, Amy, you had your assignment this week. Elon Musk uh, hosted SNL for Mother's Day because somebody decided that was a good gift for mothers. Um, And I asked you to tweet through it, Um, but you fell asleep, right? I did. I fell asleep. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really sad because Saturday Night Live comes on at like nine here. Yeah, that's kind of, that's low-key pathetic. Um, But to make up for it, you said that you would watch it and tell me about it on the show. That's true. And I did. All right. I did it. So. Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say that uh, I don't know, I don't know who came up with the idea of like, of all people, Elon Musk, the man who like, you know, tweet dreams, the man who like tweeted through his newborn's first six months. Um, yeah, <laughs> like the perfect dude. But anyway, um, oh, wait, actually, before you do this, can I ask if a couple of things came up and you just tell me yes or no? Yes. Did the name of his baby? Come yes, up? it did come up. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, did emeralds come up? No. Mm-mm. Nope. Interesting. Cause he's got like that emerald mine in South, South mm-hmm. Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, did, um, did Joe Rogan come up? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Marijuana? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Azalea Banks? No. Good one, though. That's a deep cut. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that was when I first found out who Elon Musk was. Oh, my God. When he was in the middle of that lover's quarrel. That was hilarious. That was hilarious. I had actually, like, forgotten about that one. But, yeah. What a weirdo. either of you want to fuck him? He's the Um, weirdest person. Um, Yeah, seriously. Oh, oh, uh, I was going to ask about Bitcoin, but I actually know. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That came up. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, Elon's relationship with Bitcoin is also very confusing because, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he was so into it. And then he was like, he put a bunch of money. I think he put a bunch of Tesla's money into Bitcoin, too. Right. And then it was like, you can buy Tesla's with Bitcoin. And they're like, super into it. And everyone who, like, you know, criticizes it is an idiot and whatever. And then now all of a sudden he's like, oh, it is actually I am I'm concerned about how energy intensive it is. <laughs> like, Really? You're just figuring that out now? Okay. Yeah. He's he's an interesting dude. I'm curious. Yes, I have a question for for you guys. One of the things I think about in healthcare is that there are really tangible human metrics. Mm -hmm. So by, by that, I mean, I can very easily as a journalist say, this hospital had a higher rate of readmission than the hospital down the street, Mm. or it had a higher rate of patient deaths or patient infections. There are a lot of really clear metrics that are really easy for people to grasp, which I can be like, here is why the situation is bad for humans. Whereas I'm speaking as a layperson here, when I think about climate change, I just think we're going to burn up, that's bad. But 
I am not currently today burning up. So right. I don't know how to like think about that. Are there similar ways where here's a discrete thing that you can totally understand that I can help you measure. Yes, mm -hmm. actually, I think that I, I actually think in an attempt to bring liability cases, there's been a bunch of stuff done around putting specific costs on damages. And I think one thing that does kind of resonate with people is this idea that, okay, look, like taxpayers had to spend this much extra in taxes last year to build seawalls to deal with sea level rise or to to like fund drought mitigation measures or to fund increased fire protection in the West, things like that, where it's like, oh, this is actually costing me right now. Or I think if it is like what's happening with fire season now where it's okay, fire season was like four months long when I was growing up in California. And now it just feels like it's all year. Same with hurricane season, hurricane season, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the, like farming stuff too. It's there are very specific impacts on crop yields that, that people can trace specifically to climate, even with sea level rise, a lot of the early reports and stuff were met by people saying, well, you don't know that that was just climate change that caused that. So they've been able to sort of whittle it down and say, of this much sea level rise, this much is directly attributable to avoidable climate change or floods. There's all of this flood damage that's now been attributed to just the amount of climate change that was avoidable. <laughs> you know, that's how they're bringing suits mm -hmm. about a superstorm Sandy and things like that. I, I kind of feel like this happens in healthcare too a little bit, although I guess there's a more direct kind of personal link to, to health outcomes. But honestly, the thing that seems to be like the easiest to break through to people with is whenever you can attach it to a, an economic cost. Well, I think it also would be more powerful if we started juxtaposing that with the profits of the fossil fuel industry. That's um, true, Like too. when you start yeah. pointing out how much money they made, what their COOs make, how long they've known about the problem, how little they're investing in the solution versus how much they're investing in the problem. I think that's why Obamacare was more successful. I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember a lot of that being about these companies making a lot of money off of other people's pain. And mm -hmm. so when you put That's those true. sorts of numbers, like the death toll and the acreage burned by these fires and the homes lost to these hurricanes, and you put that up against what the fossil fuel industry is making, then and it, you are, it makes people angry. Yeah, totally. And they are there are starting to be some more quantitative metrics around health impacts mm -hmm. of climate, too. So you can say, look, this many people died from extreme heat last year and, and then yeah compare that to to other things i also think like there's yeah. there's some new stuff recently around like how much the the industry spends on lobbying and uh, against climate mm -hmm. action and like how much it spends on greenwashing versus how much it's actually investing in anything that isn't fossil fuel development so that kind of stuff can be good mm -hmm. too but yeah and I mean, I think one thing that Mary is kind of pointing out here is who you're holding accountable. And mm -hmm. I think that that's where this longstanding, ongoing, like denial of climate change being being caused by humans is both like a great distraction tactic mm -hmm. by those who maybe don't want to be accountable, but also 
makes it hard as you compare to the health, which is if I get a terribly large bill, an unfair bill, I know who sent it to me. Right. Like, I don't, I don't question that. We don't have to debate that fundamental. Whereas, I mean, um, obviously there's, there's all sorts of problems in, in healthcare with, with science denialism, but mm-hmm. I think that that's like the first thing you're up against. I, so I, I did a story a few years ago where I followed a bunch of crab fishermen who ended up suing the fossil fuel companies and like 80% of them were, were actual climate deniers. Like they don't think that humans mm-hmm. impact climate change, <laughs> but they were mm-hmm. signed on to a, like a massive lawsuit against the 30 largest oil companies because of fundamental fairness issues like they had been shown all this documentation Mm. of fossil fuel companies spending a bunch of money and and like getting patents and all kinds of stuff for for Mm -hmm. basically making their business resilient to climate change so like re-engineering oil platforms for sea level rise or Mm. designing oil tankers for a melting arctic you know and things like that and so their like their contention was well, I don't care what's causing it. You knew that it was happening and you told us not to worry about it, but you invested all this money in like making your business resilient. So that that was like a big penny drop moment for me. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh, I actually think the the quote unquote believing in climate change thing is it's almost too high of a barrier. Mm -hmm. It requires enough of an understanding of science and enough of a sort of acceptance of the expertise of scientists that like you can even get to that place. Plus it has been so politicized that it kind of requires people to reject this like tribal identity, you know, which Mm -hmm. is a big ask. So if it can Mm -hmm. be like, Oh, Hey, these people had information that they could have shared with you, but instead they hit it and they benefited from that information and you have suffered Mm -hmm. from the lack of that information that is like a pretty basic story that most people can kind of understand and feel and feel like it's unfair. There was one skit that I heard about where mm-hmm. they were like, oh, I actually saw it where it was like hospital Gen Z or something. Gen mm-hmm. Z hospital. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw it. And I yep. think Elon was playing the doctor or something. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, uh, it was bad. It was very bad. Mm-hmm. And and I mean bad in the sense it was less offensive than it was just not funny. It was just dumb. Um, yeah, I mean, that's was my, just so like, my broader issue is that SNL is not funny. I was like, oh, wow, like, still not funny. Um, First of all, it was like, yeah, I just, their whole, I don't know what the, like, the, the only thing I could figure out with that skit that was supposed to be funny was that they were using, like, apparently Gen Z slang. But I don't think it even yeah. was. I don't even think it was right. And then a lot of people were offended because what they were calling Gen Z language was really like Black American language, mm. um, because that's how these things work before they enter the mainstream. It's usually mm-hmm. something that was said in the Black community. Like mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. people would be like, "Yes, that came mm. from the Black church. That came from like old ladies in church." Right. Um, and like you know, you repeat what your elders say, and the next thing you know, white folks are saying it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what that skit wound up doing was mocking black people. Oh, great. Um, yeah, exactly. And it also was just not funny. It was really not funny. Yeah. They're honestly the only like part of 
SNL that I ever find amusing is the weekend update part, which like basically, mm -hmm. you know, is sort of similar to like John Oliver or The Daily Show. You know? Right. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I think, you know, was the inspiration for those shows. But like, um, you know, so that part was funny. And actually in that part, they had Elon come on as their like, you know, finance correspondent. And, oh, is this where um, he tanked uh, Dogecoin? Yes, yeah. because he, they were like, but what is it? And uh, he kept being like, it's a, you know, it's the currency of the future and whatever, which actually it was pretty funny because that is completely how people talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Like when we were having our, convers our conversation with Maddie about it, um, I feel like we were both like, well, it's like it's code and it's this and it's a puzzle. And you're like, I'm so confused. What is it? Still confused. <laughs> Still confused. And that's what um, that's what they were doing, too. And it was it was like it was pretty funny. And then at the end, I think it's Michael Che was like, so it's a hustle then. And uh, and Elon Musk goes, yeah, it's a hustle. <laughs> oh, and then and then Dogecoin tanked. Coin right? tanked. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh yeah. my gosh. And then later mm -hmm. this week, um, what happened with Bitcoin and uh, Elon broke up? Elon Musk's tweet wiped out $360 billion worth of Bitcoin because he tweeted that Tesla would stop accepting digital like digital oh. currency for car purchases due to the, right. to, like, the environmental impact. Um, and so yeah. actually that was super interesting because... Um, a lot of like the, the Tesla fanboys were were like a little bit head exploding about that, you know, because it's like, wait, what? And then also like a lot of the um, a lot of the Bitcoin people who had been, you know, sort of like into Elon and Tesla and like maybe some tangential climate stuff or whatever were all of a sudden like, you know, fuck the climate alarmists. <laughs> yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. Someone wrote. I I showed it to you. Someone wrote in being like, now that Elon, they think Elon's listening to our show mm -hmm. <laughs> because he broke up with Bitcoin. I'm like, that would be <laughs> hilarious if Elon listens to this show. Mm hmm. That would be really funny. Like he hate listens. That's so funny, um, actually. But honestly, that whole thing confused me so much that, like, he would make that argument about the environmental stuff. Because it's, like, again, not new information, been around forever. Like, that information was widely available when he announced that Tesla would take Bitcoin for, you know, <laughs> for cars. So, like, it was just very confusing. Like, that would be so funny if he found that out for the first time because he hate listens to this show. That would be the funniest <laughs> show in the world. <laughs> Yeah, another thing I was just thinking about was healthcare policy up until I feel like Obamacare was kind of framed as a policy of deprivation. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's how climate action has been framed as mm. policy of deprivation up until the Green New Deal, yeah. which I think is really interesting. Is once people understood with Obamacare, like, we want to give you things. <laughs> right. It became, I mean, it was not easy to pass that thing. And Caroline, I don't know if you covered that at the time. 
No, I didn't. I mean, sort of tangentially in sort of the effects, but I didn't I didn't cover health policy square on. But yeah, I feel like Green New Deal gives us a totally different story to tell about climate change because it's about giving people things. But still, the Republicans try to frame it as taking something away, which I just I just find that really interesting. Mm. It, it's it's so interesting to me. I was just I was just thinking about this because I there's the latest like crackpot extreme right wing idea is to privatize roads. Have you guys heard about this? It blows my mind because it's like, oh, it's not actually that you care about people having to pay for the use of these things. It's that you want them paying to a few specific companies or individuals instead of the government. Like you want it going to the personal enrichment of a few people instead of the public. And the I see that messaging in the like anti-Green New Deal stuff, too. And I'm not saying I support any particular policy or any of that. I just think the messaging is interesting that it's like, oh, this is going to take away everything and leave you in poverty. And it's like, OK, but extreme capitalism with zero government regulation is going to be great for everyone. I don't know. Yeah, it's all about taking away people's burgers. And let me tell you, look, yes. I do want to take away some specific people's burgers. Like I, I want to take away Sean Hannity's burger. <laughs> I want to take away Sean Hannity's Tucker burger. Carlson's just burger as he's about to bite into on it. it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, just the minute he's about to take the bite, I want to pull it yeah. Um But yeah, it's weird how that messaging point keeps coming back around and around. And I also mm-hmm. thought that was kind of interesting around healthcare after Trump got elected. There were so many people being like, yeah. ha ha ha, goodbye Obamacare. What did you think about, or do you have any thoughts about how the healthcare beat has changed under since the Trump years? Well, I think especially as you guys were talking about like the politicization mm-hmm. of it, just like climate causes, climate change causes, I think that we've seen this shocking amount of politicization around healthcare just during the pandemic. And yeah, I think that that was something that caught a lot of health journalists by surprise. Oh, wow. Um, because we were, I think you were used to maybe debating over whether or not high level, there should be single payer versus private insurance, you know, like that kind of where you could see people line up in their camps. But both sides, I think more traditionally would be have like reasons for those. And then all of a sudden during the pandemic, I think things like masks got so politicized mm-hmm. that I felt like it was just almost like completely severed from any notion of we want to see what the evidence is mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And I've had certain stories which I felt are like I write them from a perspective of always I don't know what I'm going to find. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go into here. I recently did a story about reinf- reinfections or cases where somebody's fully vaccinated and still manages to get sick. Mm-hmm. Super, super rare. But I thought they were really interesting. The reports that were coming up and ultimately what my story found was that they happen extremely, extremely rarely that somebody would not only get COVID after being vaccinated, but actually be hospitalized. But that we're, we should be learning from these cases, mm-hmm. however rare they are, because mm-hmm. they can help us look out for variants or look out for specific populations of people who might be more vulnerable and that a genotyping and investigation is not being done well. So that was my story. And mm-hmm. I approached it totally <laughs> kind of cold, just like, what's going on here? Let me see what I'm going to find. And I put it out in the world and like half the people will see that and they're like, see, 
they're super, super rare. I don't know why the, why the CDC at that point was still saying that we can't travel. This is proof that we should just go out there and live our lives. And then I had a whole bunch of people who were like, well, look at that. You can still get infected and still get hospitalized. Why is the CDC saying that we can meet people in, indoors without masks after we've been vaccinated? And I was like, how are these reactions all reactions to the same story? It's yeah. like people yeah. just come at it with their own bias and narratives. And uh, there's a middle ground here, I think. Yeah. But yeah. there's no, like I would say 90% of the reactions I got were very much like, indicative or revealing to me of that person's emotions and sort of preconceived notion. That's so mm-hmm. interesting. It's so interesting too. Yeah. Like you said, I do think that I hadn't thought about that before, but that kind of who should pay for what has always divided up along political lines, but that I don't, I don't think that we've seen in our lifetimes anyway, like this kind of thing of, of, oh, I don't think this virus exists, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, oh, we have with climate yeah. change, right? Like, I don't think climate, climate change, change exists. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like, wonder how I, much, like, the like the science denial around climate stuff and, like, the sort of tribal political identity stuff that came with that fed into what we saw mm-hmm. with COVID. I don't know. I don't know, but it did make me think a lot like, wow, this is what my colleagues who cover climate must deal with. Because <laughs> yeah. I, and, and that was, it felt new to me, the, the very fundamental, like we're not even debating over how to respond to this pandemic. There are people who are saying, this is all a hoax. Yeah. The pandemic is not happening. Yeah. People are not actually dying. And having to sort of respond to misinformation and disinformation at that very fundamental level sometimes made me feel like I want to move on to like how do we respond but I first need to assert that this is actually a thing yes Mm -hmm. yes yeah I, I mean I think that's definitely a reality this holiday season get a gift for yourself too and keep it simple I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%, 40-40%. 40%. Go to slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. EarthBreeze.com/drilled.
time of your brother's murder. I was. <laughs> and how exactly was he uh, killed? Sorry. We had a friendly race with a golf cart. Then someone thought of a banana peel out of Mario. His car spin out. He wiped out all over the pavement. I hear a noise like. And I know my brother was a dame. And is the person who threw the banana peel present in the courtroom at this moment? He is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really Mario, the evil Mario. Objection! I'm sorry, the other Mario. <laughs> the prosecution restaurant. He's a monster! Uh oh, I have food. Don't worry, this is why they pay me the big bucks. Would the defense like to call its first witness? Uh, we would, Your Honor. The defense calls Wario. <gasps> I just want to see him say something. Okay, this is very entertaining and enjoyable. Wario, <laughs> is it true, as many have put forward today, that you are evil? No, I am not the evil. I just am Okay, so all right. That's where I get off. Right there. Okay. <laughs> And I think that brings us into another thing we wanted to talk about, which I think climate and, and healthcare really have in common is this science denial in American culture at large. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I spent the last couple of years digging into all the, not even the, I mean, there's the tobacco stuff, but even before that, there were a lot of, of publicists that were working on kind of various forms of science denial. And I just, I feel like, I don't know. I think there there was like a lot of groundwork laid on disinformation in the U.S. in particular for the last 50 odd years that just really set the, the American public up for the kind of disinformation that we saw working with COVID. And in fact, actually, like there's a few in the sort of climate denial space, there's a few of these like lone wolf operators that I that I follow on social media because they're just like. They're very extreme, but they're also kind of like bellwethers for for other things, you know? And yep. so... Oh, my God. Amy, why do you torture yourself? Because I want to know what's coming. I want to know, like, what, what yeah. they're going to talk about next. So they all started doing this, like, COVID hoax thing really early on, like, in, like, April of last year. They were like, this is a hoax, blah, blah, blah. And then wow. they kept it up all through like all through the year and I was like this is super interesting that these same people and then it was like a lot of the same funders of the the reopen rallies and stuff were people who had been big funders of of climate denial too and yeah I don't know I mean I think in their case I think they are less deniers of particular types of science than they are virulent defenders of capitalism <laughs> you know Mm. Um, so but it yeah. often comes in the form of denying it's like a, a lot of times i think science denial happens because something that scientists learn threatens the economic model that that we're so attached to hmm. Hmm. that's interesting i think the other thing that i i'm curious if you guys have thought about have have worked on this in any way or, or what do you think about this is i feel like there's 
a lack of fundamental understanding of the science process. Yes. That's like one of the big mm-hmm. goals I have Huge. in yes. writing about healthcare and during this pandemic is like people expect there maybe to be an answer right away. I mean, this is a, a communication problem too, mm-hmm. right? To, to explain to people that science evolves. Right. Findings may change. I have to adapt to that. That doesn't mean that I was lying to you the first time. I think that I think that happens with climate all the time. It's like the language of science is kind of a language of uncertainty and not knowing everything. Like that's the whole thing, right? And people often mistake that for for it not being solid or for yeah, people lying or things like that. But there's a reason they do that. Powerful industries have weaponized the uncertainty of scientific language for a really long time. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think it's always hard. Like, I think a lot of scientists, I'm sure the ones that you interviewed too, you'll ask them a question and they'll be like, well, you can't say that with certainty. Uh But, you know, I I did this study Mm -hmm. and let me read you the abstract of my study. And we're within the confidence intervals here and i'm like wow like in in fifth grader english please can you just assert yes. for me because we're dealing with people on the other side who are like this pandemic does not exist right so right. you could come out and be like with 99.9 percent certainty right we are going to be able to classify this as a pandemic <laughs> just, uh, it comes across as lawfully when I know that they're not, it's actually not lawfully, it's trying to be super precise and accurate. Yes. And I, and I think about that a lot, like as a journalist, yeah. how do I convey to people uncertainty when I'm trying to be precise? Yes. Like, how do you convey uncertainty, but not doubt? I think it's like the, yeah, yeah I know. And yeah, it's, it has been like that, that sort of it's, I don't know, that approach to communicating, I guess, has absolutely been exploited and weaponized by mo- many industries. Like, you know, you see it with the chemical industry and GMOs and stuff too. And then we don't really, I mean, we don't really teach it in school either. Like I didn't, I never learned how to read a scientific study until I had to report on them. Yeah, it's a tough one. Also, but then also, I don't know if this happens with in the health realm, Caroline, but like in the climate realm, the people who are doing science are kind of discouraged from being good communicators. If you're good at communicating, you are generally considered to be bad at science, which is so so unhelpful. Uh, yeah, I think it's not, I w- wouldn't say people are discouraged so much as I do think that there are, there are personalities that may be seen as, oh, you're just like very media friendly and with a shade of that's, not pure academia. And I think that there is a way that academics are trained to talk to one another, which doesn't translate perfectly well over to really just doesn't translate well to the public. And I think about this a lot when sometimes I'm interviewing scientists who just refuse to leave the jargon. And and I'm like, what is your concern with? I'll be like, can I say it this way? And they'll be like, well, that's not exactly precise. And what I often get to is they're worried that a colleague of theirs in academia will see this sentence coming out of their mouth and be like, wow, that was not like nuanced and precise enough. And I'm like, I usually have to be like, well, what if you were explaining this to someone who is 10 years old? Then they're like, oh, then what you, then what you told me, that was great. That was fine. Just use that. (laughs) I've had people ask me for corrections for that reason. Like where they're, and it's, but this doesn't change the information. And they're like, yes, but you know, 
<laughs> my my co-authors will think that I have like grossly overstated this, you know, or whatever. And I'm like, yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. That sounds very familiar. I did once write a story about a math problem that had and and a proof that this Japanese mathematician had come up with that he wasn't explaining to people. And my favorite reader demanding a correction email. It comes from a mathematician who read my story, which was for a lay audience, which is hard enough to translate math to lay audience. And he goes, there is an errata in your story. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and he was basically saying I wasn't being precise enough. And I was like, I, I'm not writing this for you, dude, but you can actually read the proof if you want to. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yep. Science yeah. literacy. And also, I don't know, I guess I feel like I guess what we're seeing is that it kind of goes both ways. It's we need the public to kind of understand the language of science. But we also need scientists to like, I don't know, find a way to be OK speaking in lay, lay terms a bit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's what I think my job is. Yeah. My job is to be that bridge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And what I'm grateful for at ProPublica is that they do let me write longer. And so I feel like a lot of what I tried to do during the pandemic is not just give people sort of the bottom line, but also be like, and here's how they got to that bottom line Mm -hmm. a little bit, try to walk them through the process a little bit. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's really interesting. And it's a good transition into how the COVID pandemic affected the media ecosystem, because just like our healthcare infrastructure wasn't ready for it, neither was our media ecosystem. I think mm-hmm. we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but so we've often lamented the drop in climate coverage when COVID took over in March of 2020. It was very stark, very steep. Mm. couldn't pitch a climate story anywhere. Um, If you got one in, you had to be talking about how climate and COVID are the same story or they're linked (laughs) or they're a metaphor for one Mm -hmm. another. Like you had to tie it together, right? And of course, like we needed to talk about COVID, but it didn't make any sense to drop one story for the other because trust me, Mm -hmm. climate change didn't see the COVID pandemic and go, oh no, after you. And (laughs) one of the ways it played out was that climate reporters moved over to the COVID desk because people were like, you do numbers, you do other numbers, you do numbers together. (laughs) But instead of letting the reporters combine the two stories and weave them together the way that they actually play out in our real lives, they were kept separate. And there was kind of this idea that people can't process these two things at the same time. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. reality is that they exist on the same planet. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I feel like that really caught up with us over the summer as the West Coast caught on fire and the Gulf Coast really mm-hmm. fell into the ocean. And people are living that under quarantine and under mm-hmm. social distancing mm-hmm. mandates. And it, it was almost like you would be forgiven if you had forgotten that climate change was happening. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I definitely think we were overwhelmed, both we as in everybody on the planet and we as in the media mm-hmm. were overwhelmed. One thing I think about, though, that you just said, which was, that it's too complicated for readers to grasp both at the same time. Like, I just refuse as a journalist to believe that anything is too complicated for my readers to understand. And the problem is me. Mm-hmm. If I can't convey it, I need to go back and like rewrite it and rewrite it. But it's not, I can't ever say my reader cannot grasp this concept, right? Because right? that's just not true. No, no. 
I know. I find that what's really irritating to me about that, too, is that I often hear the same people saying those kinds of things. Well, we can't overwhelm people with too many things at once or whatever. We'll turn around and say, we need to give readers credit for being as smart as they are when it comes to questions about sponsored content and whether mm-hmm. people can spot the difference and things like that. I'm like, mm, mm-hmm. you can't have your cake and mm-hmm. eat it too. Like people who are like self-selecting to read a story about a complicated topic are not too dumb to understand how it intersects with other things. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. The other thing too, that I feel like I saw a lot during the pandemic was People trying to oversimplify messages, like whether it was about masks early on, sort of the messaging about you don't need them when I think the real concern was, do we have enough supply that we can prioritize? Mm-hmm. People are smart enough to to be able to tell when somebody is trying to hide something from them or when things don't add up. Now, they might not know why because they're not scientists, but I think that the public often reacted very emotionally to this just doesn't feel like it makes. And so then they feel like they're being lied to or something. And that's where I'm like, you need to embrace the complexity of the situation we're in and tell people when, no, we don't, the scientists don't have 100% clear answers to this question yet. It sucks, but they don't. And so we shouldn't pretend Mm -hmm. that there is an answer here. Yeah, for sure. I also going back to the idea of one story at a time also gives me echoes of the way that people talk about race and climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can't message about or write stories targeted to black people about climate change because black people have enough to worry about already. They can't they can't add climate what? change. So this has definitely been a school of thought. And so it's um, kind of, yep. Wow. Yep. Guess who worries about more than one thing at a time all the time? Yeah, <laughs> it's right. everybody who's living. Everybody who's living. Yeah. Right. Like this idea of we can only do one thing at a time is an extremely privileged idea. Imagine mm-hmm. I, the luxury of having one problem at a time. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like yeah. there's literally a song called 99 Problems. <laughs> you know, so <sighs> we're familiar. We're familiar with the concept. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it's it's just super frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering, we talked about this a little bit, but what are some of the ways that you've seen the healthcare beat change during the COVID pandemic? Well, I do think that, as I mentioned, everybody suddenly had to deal with a lot of just plain science denial. I do think that there. Actually, speaking of race and racial disparities, one of the things that I do think that the pandemic just sort of stripped bare was showing the the inequity that we always knew existed, that was always there. This is nothing new, but it just really brought it to the forefront. And I'm interested to see how this carries out in the coming years. There was suddenly this awareness, just to take an example here, of we need clinical trials to be well-represented with age, with race. I've never seen ever before pharmaceutical companies reporting the demographics of people who are enrolling like live as they were enrolling it. And then even in some cases having to be forced to slow enrollment a little bit to make sure that their, stu- their studies were uh, well, well-represented. And that's something that has obviously been a problem in the clinical trials for decades. And now I'm wondering, do we go back? After after COVID, does the media continue to sort of 
hold pharma accountable for this when it's not something that everybody is scrutinizing publicly. So there, there, there are certain themes that I'm, I'm really interested to see how they carry, they keep going beyond the pandemic, mm-hmm. hopefully. Yeah. I wonder, what do you, I wonder if you think that Twitter had a lot to do with like how difficult it was to get clear information out mm-hmm. on COVID. Cause it felt like everybody self-appointed themselves as a public health communicator. It's, it's real preachy out there on the Twitter streets, Caroline. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Uh, a <laughs> lot of, lot of armchair epidemiology has occurred yes. in the last yes. two year, year and a half. I, I guess the first thing I think is that Everybody who is on Twitter thinks that there are more people listening to them than there actually are. Like, I actually think that most regular people are are not glued to Twitter in the way that Twitter super users are. And Mm -hmm. they get their information much more from local TV, from from Facebook, for sure. I'm sure I, I know people who primarily get their news off of social media. Like, just sort of who in their regular circle is is sharing information. So I don't you know, I don't know how much Twitter itself was like the source of information for all Americans, but I do think that there was rampant ability for people to just put out statements and assert and assertions and then have them travel and sort of conspiracy theories that could get picked up and amplified, which just makes it a lot harder for people who are trying to put out factual information, whether those are journalists or public health officials or scientists. Yeah. Well, I feel like Twitter is where nuance goes to die. Mm -hmm. And sure, most people are not on it. Um, Most people are not super users, but it is, it's extremely influential in our culture, especially because journalists have to be there and journalists are the ones who are interpreting news for us or whatever. So I think like the reaction to your story that you were talking about earlier, where it's like people were either way over here or way over there. That's, I think that's kind of a result of our hyperpolarization, which sure, it would exist without Twitter, but I think Twitter really exacerbates mm-hmm. it. And because we're all at home with nothing to do mm-hmm. and lots of us are just glued to our phones even more than we normally would be. So it's kind of like, it's difficult to message on how things are relaxing because of the vaccines, because now it's like hypervigilance over the virus has become a political identity to a degree. And the yep. that's fine. If you want to take a lot of precautions, that's fine. But what I'm sick of is like the judgment of people who want quarantine to be over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I mean, it, it's that's not healthy either. Like mm-hmm. this does suck. And for people with mental illnesses and all sorts of other problems, like this is just, it's not sustainable. And it's not sustainable to tell people they're bad people for not wanting to live like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this sort of is a little bit going back to an earlier notion, but I think people have not been taught as they grow up or are not encouraged to by the media or by platforms like Twitter to always start from the data, which is, I, as you said, there's some people who are hypervigilant who are like, I can't let go of being in quarantine. Like, I understand that from an emotional place where that can be hard, but I also, like, at a certain point, you have to just, like, follow follow the science, follow the virus. I've had so many people through the pandemic ask me for what should I do? Mm. And I'm like, there is no blanket answer because I would start with who are you? What is your health profile? What's your risk tolerance? Mm -hmm. Who are the people around you? What is the infection rate around you? Now the question is, have you been vaccinated? Still local, what is happening around you? Who you are as an individual, it's going to shape so much of your personal risk tolerance and then how that translates into your choices that you can't just have like 
the whole world needs to do X. Right. Um, that often, often does not apply other than even you can't say every single person must get vaccinated. Some people can't tolerate vaccines. Right. As I wrote about some people who are immunosuppressed aren't going to have a good reaction. And so that also then informs how we should respond right. around them. That makes me think of another aspect of the media ecosystem stuff, too, that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, Caroline, is like the just the way that I guess TV news, both both kind of cable news and local news covered this and how that fed into either good or bad information. I like I <laughs> I have a personal anecdote here that like I feel like my my mother became sort of vaccine hesitant for the first time in her life. And I swear it's just because, like, she was at home watching TV too much. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, like, what you saw happening with with TV coverage of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'll first start by saying I don't own a TV. Mm -hmm. Good for you. I just can't actually give you a very wholesome response to this because I just did not watch much TV at all. But I do think that they're kind of some some lines of narratives I, I saw. One thing that really concerned me, which was new, this is something that came up in health journalism that I would like to see dropped uh, after the pandemic, is breathless reporting of preprints. And I think that this is for so preprints for for those who aren't familiar with the terminology are, are studies that have not been that have not yet been peer reviewed. And so what normally happens pre-pandemic, what would happen is health reporters would get a preview under embargo. So like you promise to not publish ahead of time from journals, say JAMA, New England, New England Journal of Medicine, whatever, they'd send it to reporters ahead of time. Reporters would have time to read them slowly, interview people. You could also go and interview people who didn't directly work on it sometimes like under the embargo agreement. So you could get a full story ready. And even if it wasn't under embargo, this would be at least a paper that had been peer reviewed. So preprints are studies that get posted online, kind of like a preview, like I'm going to submit this to a journal. It's not maybe perfect, but I want to share this data with you. And there's really good reason why it exists, which is that journals take forever. Like they just take forever to review and edit and accept studies. So during COVID, because the pace of science was moving so fast, we were real-time learning about the virus, real-time learning about therapeutics. Everything was being uploaded as preprints and then immediately being reported on. And I don't think, there's some people who say, oh, you just shouldn't report on preprints ever. I don't think that's actually practical, especially during a pandemic. Nobody's gonna wait for six months for something to land in a journal. Like it affects us right now. But I think the way reporters reported on preprints was not sufficiently cautious in many cases. Like I, my motto is like, never let a preprint walk alone. So if I see something in a preprint, I will look for other studies that back it up or like a collection of preprints that are all sort of pointing to the same direction. Obviously you need to get these extra carefully vetted by people who didn't work on that study. So other right. experts in the field. And that's, and also help the reader understand what it is they're looking at. So explain, this is a preprint. This is how it's different from a peer-reviewed study. And a lot of those kind of safeguards were not happening. And so I think there were headlines about like, the virus has mutated in a way that's going to kill us. You have people be like, doubt that down. Or there was a very infamous antibody study uh, conducted out out of Stanford where the original headline was, 
it's way more prevalent. Like people, way more people have been infected than we think. And then it then got roundly criticized, mostly on Twitter, by the community of scientists who sort of pointed out all these flaws in the methodology. And then it did get eventually revised, but then nobody reports on the revision. Mm-hmm. So all that people remember is the initial headline, which could actually just be wrong. Right, right. That drives me crazy in general that like the, the correction never gets as much attention. <laughs> Don't repass headlines, period. <sighs> like I know. ever. Right. So, I know. Like I am forever branded as the woman who hates recycling. Why do you hate recycling so much? What I, wrote. I, I hate recycling now. After all, after <laughs> I wrote an for Caroline's benefit, I wrote an article three years ago, and the title that I did not write was, I work in the environmental movement, I don't care if you recycle. That's not what the article is about. It's about expanding oh, no. individual action beyond consumer action. Mm-hmm. But whatever, I'm still like challenged to recycling debates to this day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. I wonder, so, um, anyway. <laughs> I wonder, Caroline, if you think that any of the problem that you were just describing was in part caused by so many not health beat reporters getting thrown at the the COVID story. <laughs> like how how helpful or not oh. was it to have a whole bunch of reporters like newly on the beat? I just felt so bad for some particularly local newspaper reporters or local TV reporters who where there just weren't enough people around who are getting thrown into this. And I, I did a number of sort of Zoom tutorials throughout the pandemic for on how to cover science, how to cover COVID, how to read a study. And I, like my heart goes out to all these reporters who were just put on the beat with no warning because they, they had great questions. They were really anxious about doing right by their communities, but they just weren't being equipped nor often did they have any editors that had any experience, for example, covering a study. So they were just like on their own. So I think the other thing that's really hard for a lot of reporters is the pressure to immediately report. And and one of the things that I I feel incredibly privileged is I, I don't work at a breaking news organization. So I could sometimes pause and wait for more data to come my way and then try to help people understand what was going on. Whereas I think a lot of reporters were under pressure to like, right immediately because they're competing with another paper or their editor saying, I just saw this thing, you should write about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really hard, especially when you feel like you are in an urgent situation, like a pandemic to be like, whoa, whoa, mm-hmm. like not ready to cover this. Yeah. And I mean, in addition to the pandemic, the media industry really bore a lot of stress over the past year from the economic toll of the pandemic. So it felt like every time you turn around, you're seeing a massive round of layoffs. And so it became a really unstable profession. And also just in general, one of the things that climate and COVID and climate and health have in common is the severe emotional toll that it takes on you to cover these things. And that's actually how you and I met, Caroline. We met mm-hmm. at that. We met at one of the last things I did before COVID took over was a panel at Vice headquarters about the emotional toll of journalism. And it's it's really real. Yeah. And I wonder how can we build a more sustainable media infrastructure that accounts for that kind of cost. <sighs> yeah, I feel like that was the question we were asking that that night on that panel, yeah, and we did not. Yeah, but we didn't find an we answer. We were not ready. We did not. Well, we, we also did not see what was coming our way. Mm-hmm. That was a 
in-person, indoors, crowded room panel. I mean, I think the, the media industry is only right now, a year and a half into it, starting to reckon with the fact that so many reporters have been beyond burned out. And I do want to shout out Olivia Messer just wrote a story or just published a story last week that's called The COVID Reporters Are Not Okay, Extremely Not Okay, which was published on Study Hall. And I think one of the things that actually really moved me when I read it is that I think like halfway through or something, she just has this one short line by itself and she's like, covering COVID-19 is trauma reporting. And I was like, wow, like starkly stating it that way is something that I don't think a lot of newsrooms went into the pandemic with that mindset. And if they had, I think maybe they would have protected and taken care of their reporters better. But I just know so many reporters who were in extreme states of stress or depression or burnout that just sort of had this attitude of one, I really have to be doing this reporting because I'm informing my readers. And two, I guess everybody's stressed because it's a pandemic. So it's probably not that unusual that I'm like feeling this way and just not being able to reach out for help because they were kind of almost like gaslighting themselves. Like maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe everybody's stressed, right? It's a pandemic, right? Um, crying every day all the time is probably normal right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, it kind of is. It kind of is. But yeah, I just feel like that's something we're going to have to think about going forward. And yeah, especially because climate change is going to necessitate more pandemics, at least on the scale it's going now. Mm -hmm. And climate change and healthcare are just going to have to become more integrated stories in general. I'm thinking about hospitals trying to operate during extreme weather, the impacts of extreme weather on injuries and, and death tolls, the day-to-day impacts of global warming, Mm -hmm. the refugee crisis, and how kind of like the mental health crisis, even outside of of journalism and outside of people who work in the medical professions and emergency response, just the mental health crisis for everybody, people who have survived these sorts of tragedies and disasters, like we are so traumatized. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I wonder if we're prepared to tell those stories. Well, I think that you're totally right that healthcare and climate change are uh, absolutely interlinked, overlapped, like the same story or need to be written about together and that not enough reporters are thinking that way or are ready to be able to cover it that way because they've not traditionally been, they've traditionally been separate beats. But I think that this is a great opportunity to collaborate with each other and also to bring each other's lenses to the story, right? Like I might cover a similar thing to you and have more of a lens of like, how does this impact the actual physical health of the people in an area? But I think that these like layers of stories through our respective lenses is is so important to actually cover the human experience. Mm -hmm. Just back to what you were saying right at the beginning, it's, it's an economic story. It's a personal story. How do we recognize that this is real for the people on the ground and then sort of show them what's happening to them I guess really clearly and helping them connect these dots yeah yeah I would just say that I think we're 
yes, reporters need to do that too. But I think a lot of the problem is also in the gatekeeping, like at the mm -hmm. editorial level mm -hmm. and what stories oh, yeah. are being commissioned and who's being put on what story and what levels of like dot connecting are people allowed to do even mm -hmm. because I mm -hmm. like a lot of my stories would get rejected because it was like, oh, this you're doing too much in here. And it's like, oh, I don't think I am. So yeah. Yeah. You can't see me, but I'm just nodding. <laughs> and yeah, I think newsrooms have to embrace complexity. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's important also for newsrooms to, I don't know. It's almost like you have to be both, Ha like broad enough mind to understand that it is co complex and that we have to tell it. And then I think for everybody in the newsroom to be humble and be like, well, maybe I cannot do everything on my own. Right. So how do I work with my colleagues or whatever it is to be able to tell the complex story that it is yes. and that, and give it the depth of nuance that it deserves. Yes. I, I have been like, I've been thinking about this a lot that I, I really feel like a big part of the sort of structural media problem when it comes to telling these really complex stories is that like competitiveness is really baked into a lot of the structure of <laughs> media. It's like competitiveness between outlets, competitiveness between journalists. Every time I think about this with the local journalism stuff too, I'm like a more collaborative model between national and local would be great. More collaboration in the newsrooms. It'd be great if like they could just put mm -hmm. a health reporter and a climate reporter on the same story together <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. um, or yeah yeah I yeah don't i don't want to ever be accused of stepping on someone's beat no. but i think having that open door to be yes. like yeah like i want you on my beat because that's part of the story yeah. that's essential to tell yeah yeah um, but it's that's yeah. it's not rewarded it's actually almost punished in a way so i feel like that yeah. is something that needs to change so that we can yeah. do a better job of telling these kinds of stories. Right. Yeah. 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 And also that actually answer very simple questions in some ways, mm -hmm. which is, for example, like, how is climate change going to affect my health? Right. Mm -hmm. Very basic question. We got to, we got to start telling the stories that help answer yeah. that. Yeah. 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 As far as collaborations are concerned, at least as far as collaborating with other outlets, ProPublica really seems like they do a good job. Like I remember last summer they did the, the immigration story, mm -hmm. um, climate and immigration series that was beautiful and so well done with New York Times. And I always associate ProPublica with New Orleans and Katrina and, and partnering mm -hmm. with the Times-Picayune. So yeah. like there are some models that could be followed for some of this type of collaboration, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just seeing it as a as a advantage, whether it's collaborating with your own colleagues or collaborating with other newsrooms, like at the end of the day, it brings our stories to more people. Yeah. It, and I think we can learn to do things like project manage. It can be it can be tricky, yeah. Yeah. but I think it is definitely worth yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Yes. Called intersectional. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and and do podcasts like this where I will call myself out. I was like, uh, I'm not a climate reporter. <laughs> you guys were like, and you guys were like, come on in. We were like, that makes you perfect, actually. Yes. Yeah. We can learn from each other. So, right. yeah. yeah, thank you so much for coming. I feel like this was just a really great conversation. I learned so much. So thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, it was a joy. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
Big thanks to Caroline Chen from ProPublica for joining us. You can and should follow her on Twitter. She is at Caroline Y.L. Chen. And you can follow us at Real Hot Take. Or individually, Mary's at Mary Hegler, and I'm at Amy Westervelt. Exactly. And you should leave us a review on iTunes if you Mm -hmm. like what you heard today. And Mm -hmm. also, if you like what you heard last time or any time that you've liked what you heard, just leave us a review, okay? Just please. All right? We we need it. Do it. it. Do it. (laughs) Um, Also, sign up for our newsletter. The links to all of that is in the show notes. And, you know, keep fucking that chicken. (laughs) 